1: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today on the program, I'm talking to Michael Sidney Fosberg about his book, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations. Fos, welcome to the program.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Andy. It's good to be with you. It's really how you, good. How talk. do you like
0: my interviewer voice? Pretty good. <laughs> it's great. Very smooth. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So this book is your your second book, and both books are kind of. We were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. Both books are kind of uh, represent elements of your uh, solo show, Incognito. Um, you have a memoir that kind of tells the story of Incognito. But then this book is kind of based on uh, and kind of extending the insights of the talkback that you always do as part of the show. Um, could, could you kind of give us uh, a, a bit of a sense of you know, I know that this is not really what the interview is about, but what the story of the show itself is, just to kind of ground our audience.
1: Sure, sure, sure. I tell it all the time, of course, <laughs> whether I'm performing it or telling it. It's,
0: just it's in do this. <laughs> this hour long show in uh, one one know, 45 seconds. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, well, I was uh, it's a story about the search to find my biological father. And in a nutshell, I was raised in a working class white family in the northern suburbs of Chicago, a little town called called Waukegan, and I was raised by my biological mother who was of Armenian descent and adoptive stepfather who was of Swedish descent. And, uh, when I was in my early thirties, um, I realized uh, I was living out in California with a British girlfriend at the time, and I realized that I, uh, my parents were getting a divorce, and I realized I didn't know who my biological father was. So on the urging of my um, <laughs> British girlfriend at the time, she suggested I needed to ask some questions, duh. And so I, uh, I called my mother and um, uh, got Very small bits of information from her, um, his name, um, which was John Sidney Woods, and that the last time she had spoken with him, which was, I don't know, some 30 years prior that he lived in the Detroit area. So armed with that information, this was the age before we used the Internet for everything. I went to the library in Santa Monica, California, which is where I was living. And I went to the phone book section, which I'm sure no longer exists. (laughs) Um, And libraries used to house um, phone books from different major cities around the country. So I looked for Detroit phone book. They had one. I looked up his name and there were about five or six listings. I copied down all the listings. I went home and I I lived in an apartment. It was about the size of this screen that we're, we're currently talking on. And I paced back and forth and I finally got the courage. I picked up the phone. I dialed the first number on the list. The guy answered the phone and I like I froze. I was like, oh my God, what do I do now? You know. And I said, well, I'm looking for a John Sidney Woods. And he said, you're speaking with him. And I said, um, wow, that couldn't be that easy. So I said, did, did you live in the Boston area in 1957? Because that was indeed where I lived with my parents. And he kind of paused and he said, yes, I did. And then I asked him if he was married to an Armenian woman by the name of Adrian Piliposian, which was my mom's maiden name. And he paused again and he said yes I was and I realized that I tracked my dad down in a first phone call some 30 years later and then you know now we're trying to wrap our heads around okay you're my dad I'm your son how do we go about talking about this and then out of the blue he sort of says to me you know son there's a couple of things you should know I'm sure your mother's never told you um, and he said first of all, I want you to know that no matter what you thought happened or what you were told, I want you to know I've always loved you and I've thought about you a lot. And Of course, I was just, I, I mean, just saying that out loud to you right now, just, it, it just, it crushed me. I was so deeply touched by that, by my father telling me for the first time that he loved me. And then he said, by the way, there's one other thing I'm sure your mother never told you. And I said, what? And he said, I'm African-American. And Having grown up in a working class white family, thinking I was white my whole life was like, oh, wait a minute. you know like all of the cartoon sounds coming through my spitting through my head and all of that I was like wow and then he could tell I was you know on the phone he could tell I was just really sort of taken aback and he he's proceeded to tell me about my family my great great grandfather was a member of the 54th regiment in the colored infantry unit in the civil war my great grandfather was an all-star pitcher in the negro leagues pitched for the St. Louis Stars and my grandfather was a genius in the science and engineering departments at Norfolk State University is named after him and i was like I'm, I'm like my head is spinning at this point i kind of like whoa whoa can, wait a second can we go back to the black part because i'm still trying to wrap my head around the black part and uh and that's you know I mean, we talked some more we, we we hung up we said we'd stay in touch we hung up and um that's how i discovered my new identity and um from there my a, a few weeks later my grandmother called she was still alive and she called to 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 check on me to to say hello and and i tell this story uh in as you mentioned in a a one-man play that i developed uh back in 2001 and uh performed it at a a number of theaters um during those subsequent years uh, a couple of local chicago theaters and then a regional theater and, uh, and then at, <laughs> as you well know, at the National High School Institute, which is where we met. And, uh, and then from that, actually, I think it was from the uh, NHSI, uh, or affectionately known as the Cherub Program, um, I think that's when it really just sort of took off in another direction that I, I, I didn't expect at mm-hmm. all.
0: And then that direction kind of took the show to colleges, high schools, corporate, um uh, events uh how how, is, how did the show for you change when it kind of transitioned out of the world of theater and into this world of i don't know what to what to call it but like edi consultancy and you know anti racism workshops uh, and, and stuff like that like how how did the show you know I, obviously i think it got shorter but other than that like how did the way you thought about this story change in that new context
1: um I guess I would say the way I thought about it uh, it changed in that I I had this sudden realization, maybe not so much sudden, but a gradual realization of how powerful it spoke to this inability of us as Americans um, to talk about race, to talk about identity. Um, And I guess I would backtrack and say it's not just Americans, although I haven't done the show in a foreign country Um, It's not we don't own the patent on racism here in America. So Um, but I I gradually started to understand how my play, my story opens people up to have um, safe, non-threatening conversations, um, utilizing something that I, I actually discovered along the way from. Um, I don't know if we've ever discussed this in the past, from a Harvard psychologist um, by the name of Gordon Allport, who uh, used to be the head of the uh, psychology department there and wrote a very seminal book back in the 1950s called The Nature of Prejudice. And he um, postulated a theory called intergroup contact theory, which is the proven theory that by sharing our personal stories across majority and minority populations, we can break down the prejudices that exist between us by discovering we have more in common than we have different. And I realized that, you know, again, as I started to move into this world of (laughs) whatever we want to call it, I, I refer to myself as a, you know, a D E and I, um, consultant, a uh, diversity, equity, inclusion consultant, um, which is weird. Cause I also, you know, I'm, I'm an actor really, and I still do it as acting, but, um, but that's, that's the space that I'm in. And, um, it's, it's, it's just been so powerful to be able to recognize the ways in which it allows people to open up and have really meaningful and fruitful conversations. And and along that way, I've learned, you know, I've been doing this for over 15 years. I've learned so many things that I've been able to bring into the dialogues that I conduct after each show, as we had talked about um just prior to to starting this podcast, I in addition to just in addition to doing the play, I also facilitate a conversation following the play in which I helped guide the audience as we unpack all of the different issues that the play brings up, whether it's unconscious bias or passing or race or whatever it might be. There are all these different things within the context of the story in which I can help people unpack, and then they can find their touch points to the story. Even though you know, I'm I'm assuming most people in the room have not had the same um, personal trajectory as I have had, but but we all have a, um, kind of a universal truth, universal human experience, and I think that's what intergroup contact theory speaks to is the the connections that we have.
0: And so you're really doing the inner group contact twice, right? They're they're hearing your story, which is a story across lines of difference, and then they're sharing their own experiences as well. I I feel like often in theater we say, you know, this is a play that encourages, you know, necessary, meaningful dialogue, but rarely does that actually happen, you know, it's sort of like, we hope that, you know, when they go for drinks after the play, they have necessary, important dialogue. But, you know, even when a show does a talkback, that's usually not what happens, that it's, you know, it's usually asking the artist, you know, how were you inspired to write this story, which is not what you're talking about. So how did you develop that kind of format of, of this very, you know, engaged participatory talkback?
1: Well, I, I'm going to go back to cherubs to the national high school Institute. Um, actually it became apparent there when I finished the show that first year, I think it was 2004. Um, as 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 you have pointed out you know oftentimes there's a discussion with the artists as you know a talk back with the artists involved the artist, the artist me <laughs> there's no there's no other actors there's no there's no set designers There's no other people so so i'm standing there and i expected to get questions from the audience of you know like um I don't know. How did you decide on the arc of the story or what, what made you decide to do the character like that? Or how did you decide on the blocking or what, what made you decide to do um, it this way or that, you know, things that had to do with theatrical elements of the play. But instead students asked me questions about, um, you know, like uh, what box do you check off on applications and, and why is race so important And why don't we talk about it and things of this nature? And I realized then like, wow, wait a minute. They don't want to talk about the theater part of it. These are theater students, right? right. They want to talk about the identity parts of it. And so that's when I had this realization, the, um, the power of the story to open up these avenues of discussion.
0: So what are some of the like opening questions that you, that you throw out after the show?
1: That I throw out. Well, it's interesting. What well, usually I open it up, and I just let people, you know, like ask me whatever. And uh, this this is a, something that gradually transitioned over the course of doing this over the fifteen years. Um, uh, lots of different questions have come out. But I, I, what I've been able to d- learn how to do was to allow people to ask any kind of question they want. And 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 let's 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 give it a scenario. So oftentimes. Um, as is the case, and thus the title of the book, nobody wants to talk about it. Um, people ask very safe questions. One, because it's difficult to talk about race. two, because the first couple questions that people ask, people are l- really hesitant to be the first person to ask the first question. Um, so sometimes they'll ask, you know,, um, what happened to the Brit? So, the British girlfriend in the play, who's the one who opened the door on this whole journey to some degree. And um, it's a simple and personal question, which I can answer by talking about that we're no longer together. But then I can broaden it and open it up into talking about um, how the journey for us was a journey that um, we, you know, both of us were impacted greatly because of this journey about race and identity. I can talk about, um, I, I'm no longer with the Brit. But I did end up getting married to someone. And oftentimes people ask me the race of the person that I married. And I'll bring up the fact that my wife is Jewish, which for people, I don't know why, some people, their heads explode a little bit like, well, why didn't you marry a black woman whatever? But that brings up another conversation about identity. Like, what is a Jew? Is it a race or is it a religion? And so it opens the door for richer and broader conversations. It doesn't matter how safe the question is. I can I can pull it over to the open up a, a broader question. Um, but one of the things, and you asked the question, what kind of questions do I ask? Um, in the last, I would say, seven or eight years, there has been a a real interesting shift. I'm I'm sure that listeners, you yourself and your listeners are probably aware of the shift in the way that um, people perceive things and how we've become, um, I don't know, uber vigilant about talking about race and identity and stereotypes and things of those sorts. And um, some of it we could refer to as cancel culture or whatever, however, we want to talk about it. but I've seen some things happen in high schools and colleges where some of the students took offense at some of the characters in my play or some of the things, some of the moments in the play that they deemed as, stereoty- uh, as, as um, divisive stereotypes. And so one of the ways I've been able to sort of open that door on that conversation, because I'll, I'll, I'll point out again that oftentimes – People aren't ready to ask you a confrontational question after a play. They're, they're gonna like you don't. I'm I, I'm guessing you don't go to the theater and see a play by your friend, and when they see you after you know after the play, you go up and tell them, "Oh, that that, that really sucked." You know, yeah, that's do really it. offensive, man. Yeah, that was really, <laughs> yeah. That was offensive. We yeah. do that, right? Yeah. We, we'll we'll make nice or you know just say something positive in some way, and um. So that also happens with me. You know, people aren't going to ask me an offensive question or whatever. Um, So what I've done is um, I will ask the audience the first question right off the bat. And I will ask people by a show of hands, um, tell me how many people in the room felt that the black characters in the play were stereotypes. And generally, a large percentage of the audience will raise their hands. And I'll say, thank you. Put your hands down. And then I'll say, how many people felt that the white characters in the play were stereotypes? And generally, a, a very small portion of the audience raises their hands. And I say, well, is, isn't that interesting? I mean, why is it that we see black characters as more stereotypical than white characters. And then we get into this discussion about what are stereotypes. Stereotypes are thoughts, beliefs, or attributes about a, a group of people without taking into consideration individual differences. We all have stereotypes that apply to us. And yet, we don't often look deeper at the people that we're talking to or getting to know or not getting to know. We're just seeing and we're judging them based on the way they look or the way they talk or whatever it might be. So I use my grandmother as, a, as an example, talking about my grandmother, when in fact, you probably only see maybe a minute total of my grandmother in the play. And what might be perceived as stereotypes may indeed be stereotypes, but it doesn't mean that she's a stereotype. And then I talk about the idea of what you're seeing is a white person play black characters, which we rarely see, unless you saw Tropic Thunder, which is a whole nother whole other ball of wax. And so if my skin had been darker, you might have per- perhaps perceived those characters differently. And So this is a way for me to open up the door on that discussion about what are stereotypes and how we view the characters.
0: And and it's funny because I, having seen the show, I'll say you're – your portrayal of, of the British girlfriend is not the most subtle acting job anyone's ever done. So, you know, I'm kind of surprising that nobody ever, ever thinks that. I mean, I guess we just don't really think that there are stereotypes about white people, you know? I mean, it's just sort of, we assume that's, stereotypes are about someone else,
1: you know? That's right. That, that is absolutely one of the issues. I have had people in the past um, mention the, the Brit as a stereotype or whatever. <laughs> but I, again, I, I have to say that is true of of all of us and of all the characters there are certainly stereotypical things about each of the characters but they are not stereotypes and um and then there are aspects of the play as you might remember where i i pull out an african statue after my after my after i discover my dad's black there's this musical transition of which there's some james brown music and i dance and i pull out this african statue and i say to audience like okay It's not like I hung up the phone with my father after discovering that he's black and that I am half black and I pulled an African statue out of my closet. It didn't happen that way. It's a theatrical device to force you to think about the ways in which we perceive blackness. And so um, there are a lot of those moments in the play. And oftentimes I'll see people who are hesitant to laugh. Because they're not sure if it's it's okay. Should I should I be laughing at this? What well, will people judge me if I laugh at that? You know. And so I bring that up during talkbacks as well because it's again it's an important thing to to observe, to acknowledge, and um to become aware of.
0: And you feel that people have gotten more reluctant to laugh over the past like ten years or so than they were when you first started doing the show.
1: Not necessarily. No. Okay. Uh, no. Uh. I mean, there certainly has been some—I uh, guess I'll call it—pushback in high school and college students, but I haven't necessarily perceived that same thing to be true in corporate audiences. Um, for one reason, I guess I would say corporate audiences understand the time period a little bit more. I mean, they're adults, so they—they they actually, some of them have actually lived back to 1957. <laughs> And so they can understand what what our country was going through in the late fifties, early sixties, and and how that may have um, affected the way in which um, my mother decided to not to tell me that I was half
0: black. Um, and it's interesting that your dad says that he suspected that she never told you, that he he knew, you know, I mean, obviously he had he had been in a romantic relationship with this woman, he knew who she was, but he also he knew that just given the time you know, if she could get away with never telling you, she probably would just, would just not, you know, which is in a way so tragic um, that she would sort of hide a piece of who you are from you, but also, you know, understanding that life was a lot harder if you were African-American than if you weren't. So, uh, you know, I mean, how do you, how do you sort of emotionally reckon with that
1: decision? Well, uh, there's an element that, uh, used to be in the play, um, but for time's sake had to be cut and is in the memoir. Um, so, the first time I went to meet my father in Virginia Beach at my grandparents' house, he one evening he pulled out this manila envelope and handed it to me and said, I'm here, this is for you. You may want to take your time with it later. And I went upstairs in the bedroom um, when I was um, retiring for the evening and I opened it up and there were all these letters that my mother had written to my father from the time um, just after I was born until the final letter, which was written just after we had left him and returned home to live with her parents. And in that final letter, of which I used to read in my mother's voice in the play, she basically says to john Sidney that she couldn't raise me to be black um it's a very very difficult letter to have written and to read of course um but she just couldn't wrap her head around how she could raise me to be black in a in a black world um in 1957, 58, 59, there really wasn't much of a biracial community. I mean, we don't even think about it now. There's so many biracial people. I think it's the fastest growing um, de- uh, de- denomination on the on the census forms. Um, but I mean, that- is- Ten years before, guess who's coming to dinner? (laughs) Right. Well, and this was uh, prior to Loving versus the State of Virginia, which also plays a small role in my in my history as well. Because there was a moment where my parents um, were trying to decide what to do. They were so poor, living in Boston, no money. My dad was struggling with work. Um, and there was a talk about, well, maybe we could move back and live with um, your parents, meaning my, my father, John Sidney's parents, who lived in Virginia. But of course, they couldn't do that because it was against the law in Virginia at that time until 1971. So, so yeah, that, that, that letter um, really kind of opened the door for me on understanding the plight that my mother had gone through and the difficulties it was for her to try to wrap her head around how to bring up a biracial kid that didn't really look biracial, but if we had stayed with my father and stayed in the black community, would have been biracial, and what difficulties would he, me, have undergone having to be in that environment and whatnot. And so, um, yeah, it became a lot clearer when I got those letters. (laughs) Yeah, wow. So let's, let's talk more about the
0: book and kind of the lessons that you've taken from doing the talkbacks. What, what are, what are some of your, your lessons that you feel like other people who are trying to have these kind of conversations could apply to their own, you know, attempts to talk about what we find so difficult
1: to talk about? Right. So the book, um, really what I wanted to do with the book was to talk about you know, the, the previous um, 12 or 13 years in which I'd traveled around the country and all of these different crazy situations that I'd experienced with people trying to go about having these discussions, you know, with me or after the show or aside from the show or whatever it might be. I, I mean, I, on average, um, pre pandemic, I was traveling to 50 or 60 locations every year. And so I was traveling a lot and meeting a lot of people and doing it in a lot of different places and a lot of different spaces, from beautiful theaters to classrooms to, you know, a boardroom to, you know, just crazy, crazy places where, you know, as an actor, I learned so much, Andy, I mean, I just, I had to walk into each one of these spaces every day and just like assess okay how are you going to pull it off in this room like you have about four feet by four feet to move around. How are you gonna How are you gonna put eight chairs on a small table in that space and do this? Because that's what I required to do the play. So all of that was um, was was going on. And but more so to the point of the book, I, I learned all these things from all these different experiences. And and what happened was as I developed this set of tools. Um, and so the book is sort of laid out in well, it's a little more than seven chapters, but seven of the chapters are the tools in which I discovered. And I talk about the stories which led me to these tools. Um, and I think the tools are the things that I, you're, you're asking me to, to talk about and, and and how I arrived at them. And um, the first tool I think is, the you know, I, I say it in the book, I say it all the time. It's, it's you know, the most obvious and, and it's uh, proven in Gordon Allport's um, theory is tell your story. You got to tell your story. And again, I, I give um, people, the the book is kind of a workbook to some degree. There's, um, you know, I, I tell these little stories and then I talk about the tool that I arrived at. And then at the end of each chapter, I sort of do like a, a quick uh, bullet point thing of here's the, here's the tool. Here's how I arrived at it. Here's some suggestions of how you can implement it. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in terms of telling your story is, you know, we don't all have to do a one person show. <laughs> I don't expect people to, you know, like I was born and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, I, you don't have to do that. Like you can you can find out so much about a person's story just by asking simple questions, whether it's whether it's what is your hobby or what are your hobbies in which someone can reveal a great deal about themselves, or if it's you know who is a person that has had the greatest influence on your life. I mean, that's a deeply personal thing that someone could share, in which you could learn so much about them. So there's so many easy ways to go about telling your story without <laughs> writing a one-person show. Um, the second tool, um, which you know is sort of in conjunction with one another, is um, don't judge the differences. And because that's the first thing we do. The first thing we do is we look at someone and we we um, we automatically I don't know if we're like hardwired for it or whatever, we, we automatically judge the differences. Um and this is oftentimes where I talk to people about um something a lot of well-meaning people will often say, Well, I'm colorblind, so I don't, you know, I don't see race. And I understand the the sentiment behind that but what that says to a person of color is i don't see you like if i'm looking at you i see you got a great beard i made comment on it right away right or, or maybe i look at the color of your shirt and go hey that color i love that color you would notice those things you can't be we're not colorblind And to say that is 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 often an insult to people of color and other people who uh, might be from a minority community. And so, again, instead of judging the differences, flip the script, find something you have in common, which we again, we all do. And then embrace the differences. I mean, if if we were all the same, we would be bored, right it's the differences that that make us unique um as people and in the marketplace and so i think it's important for us to embrace those and not judge them and then thirdly and this is um it's 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 a much broader um idea than i'm going to state here but it's we have to recognize that there isn't one way to have a conversation about race and identity. So we, we're having a conversation right now, and there may be some listeners who might take offense to the way that I talk about it or the way we're talking about it. And there may be lots of listeners who find it um, easy to digest and um, write on and on point and all of that. My point is, is that we don't all have the same way in which we digest that information. We don't all read the same book and walk away with the same message. We don't all read the same play and walk away with the same themes. Why would we think that we could all have one conversation about race? Look, if there was one way to converse about it, we'd all be doing it It'd make it a lot easier for us, <laughs> but there isn't. And so I'm trying to get people to recognize that, that we each of us come to the table with a different experience of race and identity. And, and, and that's why it makes it so messy. And in that messiness, we have to recognize that we can disagree so long as we're not disagreeable and this um and you know it's not like i didn't i didn't invent this term it i actually i think um i think i may have heard um former president obama talk about this during his presidency talking about we can disagree so long as we're not disagreeable it's it is so in some in some ways i know people might take it as a political statement perhaps and and yet if it is, we certainly aren't adapting it. We're certainly not using it because we are more disagreeable now, uh, in a disagreeable way, um, than we've ever been. And what I'm what I'm advocating for is civility in conversations about race. And it, yes, if you want to extend it into the political sphere as well, we're just we're just not going to get on the same page if we suddenly get angry with someone. Once once you're disagreeable with someone, the conversation stops. It's right, over. Right. It's done. I'd love to talk to you about that because, I mean, you've had
0: you know hundreds of these conversations and I'm sure you've encountered people from all across the ideological spectrum. I feel like as, you know, I'm speaking from my, my liberal to left bubble in, in Brooklyn, but I feel like it would be really hard for me to have, you know, an open conversation with a lot of conservatives about issues around race. I mean, I just I heard on NPR again, liberal bubble this morning that something like 50% of americans think that there's an invasion on our southern border uh <laughs> and, and you know i'm i grew up in arizona and i'm like <laughs> i didn't ever see it you know i didn't ever see the mexican tanks you know uh-huh. uh, driving down highway 51 so i i'd love to know um you know how do you how do you do uh, obviously you know we can't have a functioning society uh if we if we sort of completely cut off half of the country um but we also can't have a functioning society if if half of the country you know ignores the existence and persistence of racism so how how do you make connections with people you know, kind of across. I don't want to assume too much about your politics, but I, I feel like I, I, know at least sort of what team you're playing for. Uh, yes, what? Uh, how do you do uh, that? Yeah. You know, how do you talk to somebody who's a, you know, a dyed-in-the-wool conservative about yes. these about these issues? What do you? How do you cross that bridge?
1: Well, I guess I'm going to first say that I'm not always successful. I mean, you know, I fall down like like everybody, and I still try to use these tools. Um. I will also say it's extremely difficult. We're in a place and you've sort of touched on this a little bit. We're in a place where one person's facts are another person's fictions. And then, and then I think you also mentioned this, like if we can't all get on the same page with what the truth is, we're going to have a very difficult time um, bridging these gaps you know, creating bridges across uh, uh, cultures, across uh, uh, political ideologies. Um, The other thing I would say is I think I've often wanted to start – I don't know. I don't know what I would call them, but for lack of a better term, political dinners where we where we would invite a number of I don't know a handful four uh, conservatives and four liberals to the table to have dinner to break bread together and just try to have conversations. Um, utilizing some of these tools as the as the as the starting point for us to to you know we can disagree as long as we're not disagreeable. Um, the next one is get comfortable being uncomfortable. Those kinds of things. But the one thing I think that I we're not really talking about too much because we're I get I guess the culture words are are are, are what killing are killing us right now. <laughs> um, is it, I I I can. If, if you were to talk to someone who has a political ideology that is opposite from you, so let's say, and we're both on the same team. So let's say we're talking to a conservative, my interest would not be so much in, I don't know, critical race theory or LGBT issues or, uh, these kinds of things. My first question to that person would be, what is it that affects you most personally? personally on a day-to-day basis is it inflation is it um health insurance is it um lack of opportunity is it lack of job what because because on on those levels on those things that really affect us because pers- let's face it critical race theory is not affecting these people personally <laughs> it's not <laughs> yeah. I, I did a panel not too long ago um where i moderate i moderated a panel on critical race theory with these um three academic experts and man we, I, I as serious as it was we couldn't help but laugh most of the time because it was so comical that we were having this panel discussion um, something that is non-existent and in many ways it feels like that's the point they chose something that they don't even know what it is and so therefore that's the thing that's the boogeyman so to speak right so again that is not something that personally affects people on a day-to-day basis so why don't we get down to the nitty-gritty let's talk about those personal things that affect people on a day-to-day basis it's not it's not about i and i I I suppose some could argue against this, but I'm. I'm, It's not about um, illegal and fraudulent voting either. It's not affecting people on a day-to-day basis, other than the fact that their side didn't win. Which I would point out, I get disappointed in my sports teams constantly, who are constant. Chicago Cubs are constantly (laughs) losing. I don't then jump up and say that team cheated. Right? They they cheated. That's the name of the game. You win some, you lose some, you you move on to the next game, you know? So I, I don't know. I guess that, that would be my answer to that complex question.
0: Yeah, that's always, a, you know, because I, I feel like people on the left do that too, where they're like, you know, we can't lose this election. Or, and it's like, you're going to lose about half the elections. You know, that's just sort of how it works. Like, you know, I feel like we have to do a better job of like, I don't know how, but learning to live with the fact that you're out of power half the time in a two party democracy, <laughs> you know?
1: Well, and, and, I, and from a Democratic standpoint uh, point of view, I would suggest that they they we um, aren't talking about these nitty gritty things that affect people on a daily basis. Look, they wanted to um, make um, medicines more affordable for people, but the Republicans blocked a, a good portion of that. That everybody wants cheaper prescription drugs. That's a that's a universal thing. Um, they blocked uh, they the Republicans blocked um, the bill that was going to help um, uh, soldiers with um, from burn pit uh, uh, discrepancies and wounds and uh, illnesses, and they blocked that until they finally came around and went, "Oh, wait, we better not block that." So, so again, things that are helping people, I don't think the Democratic Party makes enough of of a case for here's what we're trying to do and here's what they've done to prohibit that but that's we're not here to talk about right, politics right, right. So. Yeah. So.
0: <laughs> i'd love to hear some of the like what are some of the most unexpected locations you've performed your show and 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 what is the <laughs> recep- what are, what are sort of some of the ranges
1: of of reception that you've encountered at those places well i'm going to tell you about uh, the, the first thing that comes to mind was a crazy thing that happened. Um, I don't know if it's so crazy, the performance uh, venue, but I, I, d- I, had a, a law firm, a fairly large law firm that had offices all over the Western United States. Um, uh, the name is Holland and Hart, And I went to their locations, I don't know, probably eight different locations, their main offices in Denver. I did several shows at the main office and then Boulder and then um was I in Phoenix? I think I was in Phoenix, uh, Las Vegas, um, Salt Lake City, Boise, Idaho. Um, anyway, I I remember it was the first show in a string of I think I did twenty one shows over the course of three months. It was my largest contract. I was so excited about doing it, working with this law firm. They really got it. They really understood what I was doing. The director of HR, and so it's the first show. We're in a I don't know what else to call it other than um, like a large conference room. They had rows of seats and they had um, an area where they would have a podium and a speaker and they had all this, the video capability behind me to, you know, project things. I don't use projections or whatnot, so it wasn't, I wasn't useful for me, but so, you know, we removed the podium, we set up some chairs and a table and, um, and there were about I think the room was packed with we about 75 people in the room um, that, that morning. And again, it was the first one of the series of 21 or whatever, and I'm doing the show and it's going great. The audience is laughing. They're having a great time. Um, I'm having a great time. We're really, you know, a lot of it is, as you know, is direct address. I'm, I'm really reaching out and connecting with each person in the room. I, at least I'm trying to. And right after the moment where I have that phone call with my father, And he tells me he's African-American. And thus I realize that I'm half African-American and I hang up the phone. And, and as you may recall, the James Brown music comes on and I do a little dance to that right then. I notice a guy in the front row whose head violently drops down into his chest, not like a sleepy nodding off, but a violently dropping down onto his chest. And I, I kind of hesitate for a second. And the woman sitting next to him notices it abruptly right away. And she turns to him and realizes he is in distress. And I, I see this and I stop immediately. I stop and, and she's shaking him. And then the other person on the other side of him shakes him. And this is an elderly gentleman, um, maybe a little on the heavy side and, um, again, he's not coming to, he's not coming to the whole room is like um up, you know, people are standing up, people are shouting out, call an ambulance, call an ambulance, call 911. I'm standing there right after, again, after I said, I'm black, I'm black, damn it, I'm black. And this guy goes out. And, and I swear, it must've been at least a minute before he came back. He came to and they they got him some water and they shook him, he kind of shook it off, and he he kind of he sits up, you know, straight, and he says, "I'm okay, I'm okay, it's all right, it's all right, keep going, keep going." I'm like, "What are you kidding me?" You know, and and. Uh, And they are like, okay, we need to take you and and we need to get some attention to get, get you some attention. And so they take him out of the room and, um, you know, there's, you know, whispering and talking in the room and, um, and he leaves and, um, they go down in the elevator. I'm assuming they're taking him to an ambulance that is coming to the building. You know, we're on the, I don't know, 25th floor or something or whatever. And, uh, we're sort of all standing around and then, um, the HR director looks at me and she says, okay, um, Let's pick it up. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I, I, I could not like. I was like trying to wrap my head around. I, I could not figure out how it's going to do this. Like, what? A, are you kidding me? Like, this guy just had a heart attack or a stroke <laughs> or something, and like now I got to pick. And <laughs> the, the show must show. go on. <laughs> the show must go on, right? That is the old theater adage, and and um, and part of me is like, yeah, right, exactly. The show must go on. And so I, I sort of took a deep breath and I realized, what well, you know, I was obvious where I stopped, you know? And so I, I, I started up again and people were just, they were right there. It, it took them maybe a few minutes or whatever, but they just came along for the ride with me. And, um, and we finished the show and we did this discussion and it was great. And, um you know the good news is that the word came back that he was fine he did not have a stroke he did not have a heart attack they think he had um he was dehydrated he hadn't been drinking any water all day all morning or whatever and they thought he was uh, passed out from dehydration or whatever so every everything was fine but it was like one of those moments when you're in the theater and you're doing something and you're like first of all, it's such a crazy thing to happen. And then you have to rebound. And as you said, so aptly, the show must go on. You got to pick it up and, and, and keep going. And, oh, um, wow. Was, did that affect crazy.
0: the talk back at all? Like, would it, was there any kind of a different feel?
1: I, I don't remember it affecting the talk back. Um, I don't remember specifically if it did or not. I, I had, a, uh, we all tell you another situation in, 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 a, in a, in the same law firm <laughs> in Boise, Idaho, I, I had finished the show and there were about, this was in a much smaller room and they were just in like sitting at round tables and I had a very small space to perform in. And again, you know, like this is a weird thing. Again, you have, I have to walk into each space and sort of assess like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this in this space? And how am I going to, um, there's only going to be, 35 people here 35 people is not very many people and they're all right next to you which i'm okay with like i i'm i'm really comfortable with that um but some people aren't actually some people aren't comfortable with you looking at them directly and as you're performing and you notice that you need to take that in consideration because you don't want to make them feel more uncomfortable so you kind of avoid that person whatever so i finished the show it goes really well they really enjoyed it we're in the middle of the talk back and we're talking and um, I don't remember what we were talking about. I guess I was, maybe I was explaining the disagree so long as we're not disagreeable um, tool. And this gentleman says, um, well, how do you go about doing it, um, you know, doing that in this age, in this, this time in which we're living? And I was like, I think I knew where he was going, but I was hoping he was not going there. And um, he, and I said, well, you know, I mean, you just have to really practice this and really, and he said, well, I just don't get it. You know, I mean, Trump's a racist. And so how do you get around that? And I was like, First my first thought was in Boise Wait. wow. <laughs> so that was my first thought. Andy. my first thought was, "Wait a minute, I'm in Boise." Be
0: the like, stereotype yeah. is, "How do you go around doing that,
1: sir?" <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so that to me was a really telling moment. Like I assumed everybody in Boise was a conservative and would be a a, a Trump supporter and that was something that I, it is not true. So that was the first thing. And then I'm confronted with, and and this is something I, uh, you know, I often mention is like racist, the R word, as I like to call it, in many ways is, is kind of like the N word. Nobody likes to use that or to be called that. No one wants to be called a racist. Even, even the, the diehard racist Ku Klux Klan members don't like to be called racist.
0: They just have a deep and abiding love of white culture. Right. Exactly.
1: So, so, so here I am like confronting that. and, And I, even though I agree that Trump is a racist, I don't know that it's going to help us any to talk about him in that way. Like are we going to win people over by saying Trump's a racist? I don't think so. That's, that's, that's a disagreeable moment. And so I kind of backtracked and said, well, I'm not sure that I would use that to describe him, although I understand and, and, and agree with your sentiment. And he said, well, he's a racist, you know, and so how are we going to get around this? How do you talk about this in this racist atmosphere? And right then, a woman stood up in the room and just shouted out, I am through with this. And she walked out. Wow. And as she was walking out, I was pleading with her, please, man, please don't leave. Please come back and sit down. Please. And she just kept going. And you could feel the pall over the room like, oh, man, we crossed a bridge. That was, we crossed a line there. That was, that was too far. And I, you know, I said, look, this is, this exactly applies to the tools. We can disagree so long as we're not disagreeable. Like you said something, sir, that was extremely disagreeable and it upset her. Now the tool on her side is she needs to get comfortable being uncomfortable, but we couldn't practice either tool without using both of the tools. And so, um, because they go together. We, they sort of complement each absolutely. other. Absolutely. Yeah. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other to, 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 for the most part. And so we finished the dialogue. We had we continued to have a really great conversation. And he was a little regretful and he apologized to me. And I said, I, I, I appreciate it. And I, I really think you should reach out to your colleague, which he did, because later – I don't know, maybe an hour later, I'm walking through this. I don't know if you've ever been to Boise. It's an adorable downtown. They have a really adorable downtown. It was it was Christmas time, and it was just great. It was really nice. And I'm walking through, and I check my phone. I'm always checking my email. And this woman had written me an email and apologized. And she said, I'm really sorry that I walked out. And I just couldn't, I couldn't sit there any longer and hear that. But I want you to know that he came to my office, and he apologized to me, and we're okay. And I wrote her back, and I said the same thing, and I just told you and your listeners is that we need to practice both of those tools in tandem that, you know, like we've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable and we've got to be able to, you know, talk about things and disagree about things, but not be disagreeable about them. So the same law firm brought many, many um, learning episodes. from. (laughs) (laughs) That's great.
0: That's great. And then now you've also had uh, people sort of on the other side of the political spectrum, refuse to engage with your, with your talk, you know, you've had, you've had, especially students who have, you know, just kind of said, we're not going to deal with this, you know, this is stereotypical, et cetera. And, and how have you, can you talk about how, kind of what tools you've used to, to open up that dialogue of people who maybe are, I mean, I, I, I think there are a lot of people you know, not just young people, but maybe it's especially noticeable there, uh, who, who aren't comfortable with discomfort and, 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 uh, you know, want everything to be presented in a way that's, you know, conforms to maybe how we would like the world to be. Um, could you, could you talk about kind of how you've bridged that gap?
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a, a pretty detailed story in the in the book about um, a particular high school in which um, some of the students took offense to the stereotypes which we discussed a little earlier in this conversation, and um, we were able to get they, well the students didn't want to come in and talk to me you know we were like hey why don't you come in and let's have a conversation and they wouldn't do that and finally um, one of the students obliged and came in and we had this really great conversation um, in which. You know i was able to point out and i had earlier in the talk back pointed out this thing about stereotypes i did the whole thing with raise your hands and white stereotypes black stereotypes um but we got to talking about um theater and um theatrical devices and all of those types of things and fortunately this kid was actually in the theater and he really sort of understood what i was talking about and um Uh, was able to go back to his group of students and I don't know how they all responded to that, but, um, but here's the thing. And this is why I, I emphasize that, that tool, I guess it's the third tool is recognizing that there isn't one way to have a conversation about race, black or white. We've got, if, if we're gonna, if we're gonna make any progress whatsoever, if we are, um, demanding that we can only have talks on our terms we're never going to have the talk we're, we're only going to um perpetuate what we accuse the other side of uh, of perpetuating and um i had some experience um <laughs> i was asked to teach uh an anti-racism course for carnegie mellon university uh theater department in the fall of 2021 um after the george floyd protests uh, that summer a lot of people was it that summer no it was that was 2020 summer. yeah it was 2020 yeah. well after those protests i think many of the uh, schools uh, decided that it was really important for us to do some some deep work and the theater department decided that they were going to since everyone was um maybe it was the fall of 2020. Anyway, um, they decided they were going to bring in a bunch of people because they were all doing most of their classes online. They were mostly virtual at the time. And so they decided that they were going to do this anti-racism work, which I give them kudos for. I think it was really a brave and uh, important thing to do. And so because they were also doing it virtually, they were able to um illicit people from all across the country and i was one of i think six people who taught um courses in anti-racism um my particular course and as you could probably surmise was about um one man uh one person say one man one person plays and uh race and identity and because i've over the years um Obviously, been a one-person performer. I also know a lot about um, solo performers and utilized video footage and writings by a variety of different performers, from John Leguizamo to Eric Bogosian to Spalding Gray to um, Lily Tomlin to, um, I don't know, a whole bunch of people. And I, and we talked about a a variety of different things from, uh, appropriation to stereotypes to, you know, I only had, I think, six classes with each of these groups, six, two hour classes. I had four sections of the group and it was for not just the students, but also for the faculty and for the staff. So in each class, I would have a number of students, a number of faculty, a number of staff. And during one of the classes, uh, well, two, two of the four classes went, went swimmingly well. <laughs> and two of the four classes had some bumps and problems. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the classes on the very last class, in the last 10 minutes of the class... <laughs> yeah it was great um two um asian american um, students accused me of um i i don't remember what the exact accusation was but i i they accused me of um belittling them or their race i guess which like the entire and this is the other thing like you're all on Zoom. You got these little screens all across the, the 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 your your screen. You got these little windows. Half of them are not on visual. Right, Most of the right. students are like not even there. You're like, oh man, this is a challenge. <laughs> yeah. Talk about a challenge. Right. Um and but for those that were there that I could see like the the looks of shock on people's faces were like, what what is going on here? What is what are they saying? And they accused me of um, of doing that and of, um, of not having, not being qualified to teach the class. What qualifies you to teach this class? And why do you, why are you doing this? And this is really destructive. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, like what gives you the permission to talk to me, your professor, your teacher in that manner in front of the class? Like, when did that come about? and secondly if you felt that way prior to this i would have hoped you had come to me or someone in the administration to talk about it and if you just suddenly felt that way perhaps the best thing to do was you know perhaps say hey could we talk about something after the class but to blow up the class in that way and i bring this up as an example because this is the kinds of things and i have talked to i don't know I, I probably have about I don't know half a dozen or more friends who are professors in theater departments across the country and art departments, and they have all experienced something similar, something where students have just I don't know gone off the deep end. I don't know I, I, I don't know how else to describe it. Been disagreeable, <laughs> using your terms. Yes, disagreeable, <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Which. Um, you know what? Do you, I, I, I after the class, so we finished the class, and I sort of um, tempered it and sort of had this um, tried to calm things down and um, and just you know talk about that I was appreciative of the class, but unappreciative of the the disruption that just took place. And a couple of the staff members and faculty members stayed on the call after they everyone had left, and they were they were aghast. And one of them who I actually, weirdly enough, had a a connection with his, his mother used to run a theater company. Oh man. In of all places, Highland Park, Illinois, a block away from where the terrible tragedy took place on July 4th. I spent a great deal of time in that theater. I did my show at that theater. Anyway, his mother used to run that theater. And now he was the technical director at Carnegie Mellon and he'd been there for 20 some years. Anyway, he said to me, Michael, I'm so sorry. I have been, I have experienced this in my classroom over the last five or six years, and it is so distressing and I don't know what to do about it. Um, and there is a book that I recommended to them and I've recommended to others. Um, I don't know the full title, but the partial title is the coddling of the American mind. It's a uh, by a couple of, um, I guess I would say they're a little more on the conservative side or center right side. But they write about what's happening in colleges and campuses and this, um, canceling. And they talk a great deal about the model that the university of Chicago took in setting forth, uh, a letter and a contract about trigger warnings and things of that sort. Um, and you know, uh, this this is happening in a lot of places, and I'm not exactly sure, you know, how we combat it as teachers, um, whether we're um, theater practitioners or uh, teaching artists or whatever. But it we have to be able to 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 get people to recognize that although their feelings may be not maybe are valid, that we all see things in different ways. And that we all bring these different things to the table and it makes for a messiness. But if we are, (laughs) we're going to beat this one as a dead horse. If we are disagreeable, um, we're not going to get to the the root of the conversation. We're just going to push people away.
0: Yeah. Yeah. it, It really comes to, you know, is your goal to create dialogue across difference or is your goal just to, you know, express your opinion? And those are. In conflict with one another, you know, very often, uh, and I, That's I, think, absolutely right. I think people don't don't uh, realize that enough. Well, yeah. Foss, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, uh, but thank you so much for being on New Books in Performing Arts. The book once again is "Nobody Wants to Talk About It" by Michael Sidney Fosberg, uh, and and I'd really recommend this book for anybody who is trying to talk about it, which I think <laughs> we all could be doing more. So, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Andy.
1: It's a pleasure.